0: Word and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke, to the Gospel of Luke as we have the privilege of continuing our study that we have just begun in this wonderful Gospel. Indeed, as Trey has so aptly said, we we are not bound by the calendar to determine what we sing, we are bound by the Word of God, so we have the privilege in our hymnody and in In our worship, to give praise to Almighty God for the good gifts that He has given. And indeed, we have the privilege of celebrating His incarnation every moment of every day, all year long. And so take your Bibles and look with me this morning at Luke 1, and let's begin at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let us pray. Father God, we rejoice. We rejoice in everything that Christ is for us and through us and in us. Indeed, we have gathered on this day because Christ has bid it be so that we celebrate, that we worship on this Sabbath day to the glory of His holy name. Remembering, Lord, that this is just a foretaste of the rest we will experience at Your right hand forevermore. And so, Lord, guide our minds and our hearts in an understanding of Your truth. And even as we behold Jesus, Conform us to Christ, our blessed King. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we all know, brothers and sisters, the gift of life itself is a miracle. I'm always amazed, even when you look at the marvels that we've accomplished in modern medicine and modern science, if you go back just to that moment of conception. Our best medical people, our our best scientists can still not explain how when when that cell begins to divide and then divide again and divide again and some of those cells become a brain and some of those cells become a heart and some of those cells become legs, the best among us still cannot explain exactly how or why that mystery happens. How a child is formed in the womb of its mother. Life is indeed a, a miracle Life was first given in the garden as God fashioned Adam and Eve personally and then breathed into them the breath of life. And then going forward from there as, as human reproduction became God's means of bringing new image bearers into existence, His Word makes it clear that He is still the one who forms and shapes each child in its mother's womb. So every Every human conception and life is a miracle, but the miracles we have come to in the text during these weeks are special to us. Last week we saw that John's conception, John the Baptist's conception, was miraculous because it was granted to elderly parents, to Elizabeth who was already barren, but one human conception in life was more miraculous than any other in all the history of creation. Because only one man was born to a virgin, and that is Jesus. And this is a glad subject for us this morning, not just for our Christmas remembrances as we've already talked about, but because we we celebrate this reality every day we are given. As 1 Peter 1.12 says, even angels long to look into these things. Charles Spurgeon said how surprised the angels must have been when they were first informed that Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life, intended to shroud himself in clay and become a human babe and live and die upon the earth. We know not how the information was first communicated to the angels, but when the rumor began to circulate amongst the shining hosts, we may imagine what strange wonderment there was in their lofty minds. What? Was it true that he, whose crown was all bedight with stars, would lay the crown aside? What, was it certain that he, about those whose shoulders was cast the purple robe of universal sovereignty, would become a man dressed in a peasant's garment? Could it be true that he, who was everlasting and immortal, would one day be nailed to a cross? How their wonderment must have increased as the details of the Savior's life and death were made known to them. Well might they desire to look into these things which were so surprising and mysterious to them. And yet this morning, brothers and sisters, we are privileged to look into them as we focus on the wonder of the incarnation and the biblical response to it. And so let's consider it from just these things. First of all, let's consider the glorious announcement of His coming. The glorious announcement of His coming. When we pick up with verse 26 in our text, we find something historically very interesting. The sixth month refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. But what is interesting here is that God did not pick a girl from Judea, but a girl from Galilee. He did not pick a girl from the temple city of Jerusalem, closest to the seat of worship there in Israel, but rather he picked a girl from Nazareth, of all places. Nazareth was a a no-account town never even mentioned in the Old Testament. It was overrun with Gentiles and Romans located between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon on the Sea of Galilee. It was a miserably corrupt town with a bad reputation. On top of that, Mary is never presented as a young girl of noble birth or any real stature in Israelite society. She was likely just a poor peasant girl, 13 or 14 years old, with her knowledge of Scripture being gleaned only from what she learned at home and heard at her local synagogue. From the perspective of the world, Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But even here, we see a picture of God's glorious purpose, don't we? The greatest news yet proclaimed in Israel and the greatest honor ever bestowed upon a woman came to the humblest of servants, a young virgin living in Nazareth, betrothed to be married to Joseph of the house of David. And when we consider it from that perspective, brothers and sisters, we see that God's choice of Mary was in accordance with His plan for Jesus to come in humility. For Him to come in humility to the poor and needy of this world. And so Gabriel came, as God told him to, and greeted her, saying in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, Roman Catholics have grossly misinterpreted this greeting as Hail Mary full of grace. And that is not a right rendering of the Greek at all. And they've used this verse to support the heretical doctrines of the Immaculate Conception and even Mary as the mediator of grace. But we need to understand that just like all of us, Mary was born a sinner. She committed sin. And she was in need of salvation from the very child she was bare, just as all of us are. God's favor was upon her and his presence was with her because God chose Mary, apart from any foreseen merit in her, to be the earthly vessel for the incarnation of his Son. So Gabriel's blessing was an expression of God's sovereign choice, not a recognition of Mary's inherent worthiness. When Mary heard this blessing, verse 29, we see that she was troubled and she tried to discern or understand what the greeting meant. We already know from the previous account with Zechariah that the appearance of an angel can be very surprising and disconcerting. And so we understand that Mary was at first troubled by this. But what is communicated by the second phrase is that Mary was also discerning. Mary was engaging in deeper thought. She was truly striving to understand the significance of what was happening and what the Lord might require of her. So, from verse 30 to 33, then, having Mary's attention, Gabriel then communicated five amazing truths to her. First of all, she was going to conceive, carry, and give birth to a son, a glorious baby boy. Now if this was the only thing communicated, she might have thought that the angel was telling her about the future child that she would have with Joseph after they were married. But Gabriel continued. The second thing he says is that she was to name him Jesus, which is a Greek form of the common Hebrew name Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. As Gabriel later says to Joseph, Jesus would be the one who would save His people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 And so His name is rightly to be Yahweh saves, or Jesus. Thirdly, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And this is where we get into what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 that Pastor Rick read for us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This Jesus would be the Divine Son, Almighty God incarnate, and thus greatest among men in all the earth number four this child would be the fulfillment of the covenant made with david centuries earlier in 2nd samuel 7 remember god had promised david that there would come one from his line who would establish his throne forever and this jesus whom mary would be the vessel to carry would fulfill that prophecy. He would be the Messiah, the one from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, that fulfilled the prophecy, the promise of a perfect king. Number five, he would rule over God's people and his reign would never end. Never end. Again, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of Christ exists spiritually in the heart of every believer right now. But we are also promised that one day Jesus will return in glory at the head of a heavenly army to conquer Satan, to judge the wicked, to consummate history, and to reign over the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. His reign will never end. And so put all of that together as Mary heard it and understood it. Though she was a virgin, she was going to become pregnant with a son, She would name him Yahweh saves. He would be the very son of God, the promised Messiah, and he would reign over the whole world forever. This, brothers and sisters, is nothing but the gospel, isn't it? This is the gospel communicated to Mary before her son was ever even born Here she was, an unknown young girl in a backwater town in a no-account corner of her country. And the angel who stands in the very presence of God was sent to her to tell her that she was going to give birth to the eternal Savior of mankind. As we hear of this again, brothers and sisters, we are meant always to be struck by the wonder of it. One of the pitfalls of of growing in our faith in Christ, of becoming more mature in our faith in Christ, one of the pitfalls of having longer and longer in this life to dwell upon the excellencies of our Savior is that those things in which angels long to look, that these things can no longer strike us with wonder. That's why, brothers and sisters, even as we go to the pages of Scripture, we should always pray to go there with fresh eyes to be struck again by the glory of Christ our King. Indeed, this is where Christianity is unique from every other religion of the world. Every other world religion, which are all false religions, every other world religions focuses on uh, deities that we have to satisfy, that we have to placate, that we somehow have to earn their favor with our worship or our offerings. Every other world religion is based on works in some form or fashion. It's about what you have to do to be saved. It's about what you have to earn. It's about currying the favor of whatever deity you espouse. But this is the wonder of Christianity, the wonder of Christ. In Christ, God does everything necessary to reconcile us to Himself. The Bible tells us that none of us by our own works can be saved. It is only through the completed work of our Lord Jesus that we can be reconciled to a holy God and have the promise of eternity granted to us. And brothers and sisters, that is a joy. That is mercy. That is grace. And it is that grace that we celebrate. You and I will never, could never be sufficient in and of ourselves to stand before a holy God and expect anything but judgment. But in Jesus Christ, Because He took on human flesh. Because He fulfilled the law of God in our stead. Because He sacrificed Himself on the cross for our sins. Because He is risen from the grave. Because of all that Jesus is, we can know true salvation and eternal life. And the glory of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished began here. And it is a wonder, is it not? You know, there was a hymn written several decades ago by an Assemblies of God pastor named John Wyckoff. It's very obscure, but I just came across this in my study this week and and it just captures it so well. The wonder of wonders as she looked on his face, that this little boy spoke the worlds in their place, The stars and the moon shining brightly on them. The earth and the sun were created by Him. The wonder of wonders as she heard His small cry. That this voice had thundered on Mount Sinai. The hand that she held so tenderly had made a dry path through the mighty Red Sea. The wonder of wonders as she looked down and smiled that He was her Maker as well as her child. He created the womb that had given Him birth. He was God incarnate, come down to earth. The wonder of wonders, oh how could it be that God became flesh and was given for me. The Almighty came down and walked among men. The wonder of wonders, He died for my sin. Let us not cease to be struck by the wonder of all that Christ is for us, brothers and sisters. When we come to the pages of Scripture, that is what is to capture our minds and hearts afresh. That takes us to my second point, to the actual divine miracle of His incarnation the divine miracle of His incarnation. When we get to verse 34, we first might think that Mary was responding in unbelief just like Zechariah did in the previous passage. She said to Gabriel, how will this be since I am a virgin? But Gabriel doesn't rebuke her as he did Zechariah in the previous passage. So we understand that Mary is not doubting God's ability to do this. She is simply asking, how? God will do this." Her question builds on her faith. It does not spring from unbelief. And so Gabriel gave her an answer in verse 35. He says, "...the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God." Now, if we dig deep into the Greek of verse 35 and we really pull apart the nuances of the words that are used here, it's still a mystery. It's still a mystery. You know, Muslims accuse Christians of believing that God made Mary pregnant through physical relations, but that is a completely false idea with no grounding in the text. What we can say is just what this verse says. We can say for certain it is that the power of God the Father through the person and presence of the Holy Spirit would cause the physical conception of the Holy Son of God in Mary's womb. That's what this means. No other explanation is required beyond what Gabriel says here. Just as God had displayed His glory and wonder by speaking into existence the scope and intricacy of the universe, He likewise displayed His glory at this center point of redemptive history by perfectly uniting in Mary's womb the humanity and divinity of His Son. As further evidence of God's power to accomplish the miraculous, Gabriel told Mary that her elderly cousin Elizabeth was no longer barren, but now in her sixth month of pregnancy. And then look at verse 37. Gabriel exclaims after revealing this to her, For nothing will be impossible with God. In the original language, it says literally, For not impossible will be every word with God. God's every word can be trusted because nothing is impossible for Him. There is nothing beyond the power of our God. There is everything that He says He will do, shall surely and irrevocably come to pass. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. He says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it nothing is impossible for our god brothers and sisters i hope you would hear that again with with fresh ears with grace given ears this morning your god can do anything and he will always always keep his promises he will never leave you nor forsake you he will be with you always even to the end of the age even when you have struggled, even when due to your own sin you have fallen flat on your face, yet your Savior will hold you fast and see you to the certainty of the promises He has given throughout His Word. That is the glory of Christ. And that is a glory that begins even here as we consider it in the significance of the virgin birth. You know, the virgin birth is significant for so many different reasons. I, I sat in seminary classes very early in my seminary career when Southern still had some liberal professors that remained. And, and I, heard, I had professors who denied the virgin birth. They, they were heretics. There's no other way to, to say that or understand that. The virgin birth is not a minor doctrine. First of all, when we think about the virgin birth, we understand that it highlights the supernatural. At the beginning of Jesus' life, we have His supernatural conception and birth. At the end of His life, we have His supernatural resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. And so, the entirety of Jesus' life, from His earthly birth to His resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, all of it bears testimony to the miraculous and powerful work of God the Father in pouring out His mercy on sinners through His Son. Secondly, <clears throat> secondly, the virgin birth shows that humanity needs redemption. And that we are incapable of bringing that redemption about for ourselves. All of humanity needs redemption and we are incapable of bringing about that redemption for ourselves. The fact that the human race couldn't produce its own redeemer shows us that our sin and our guilt are profound and absolute. God saves us because a divine solution was necessary. We required a Savior from outside ourselves. And so as it says in Romans 5-6, for while we were still helpless, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Thirdly, the virgin birth. In the virgin birth, we see God's initiative in redemption on display. In the virgin birth, we see God's initiative in redemption on display. Think about this. Gabriel was not sent to Mary, first of all, to ask her if she would be willing to be the mother of the Messiah. Gabriel was sent to announce what God had already decided. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. God did not ask for permission to save us. Because in our sin, if He had, every single one of us to the man would say no. God didn't ask for permission. He sovereignly acted, gently but decisively, to save us from our sins. And fourthly, His virgin birth shows us that Jesus has a fully human nature and a fully divine nature united in one person. In the eternal wisdom of God, He could have saved us probably a thousand other ways, but He determined that this way would be the greatest expression of His glory and love. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology writes, God in His wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that His full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of His ordinary human birth from a human mother and His full deity would be evident from the fact of His conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, no human person existed prior to conception like the pre-existent Jesus. And no human being was virgin born except Jesus. So in all of creation and history, He alone possesses unique glory as the God-man. And the virgin birth invites us to glorify Him for this truth. To give praise and glory and honor to Him for coming to earth in this way. And it means, brothers and sisters likewise, that we are to cast ourselves upon Him as our only means of salvation. You know, Lisa and I, my wife and I, are at this stage in our lives where, like many of you, more and more we find ourselves having to take care in some form and fashion of our senior adult parents. And any of you that have taken care of senior parents, you know how hard it is for them as they age to to not be able to do for themselves what they used to do. They get frustrated because they have to depend upon others. But you know what? That's that's a reflection of, of a sense of independence that all of us cling to no matter how old we are, right? We all have that sense of independence. And and listen to me, being able to take care of ourselves is mostly a good thing. I mean, after all, we raise our children to learn to take care of themselves so that they will be responsible adults. It's a good thing to have some of that sense of responsibility and independence. But hear me, it's not a good thing in spiritual terms. Because spiritually, we cannot be independent. Spiritually, we are all broken and incapacitated by sin. Every single one of us requires help and intervention. Every single one of us requires a solution that must come from outside of us. A divine solution that is found only in Jesus. God has sovereignly intervened to provide Christ for us. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have heard me already talk about this glorious gospel and what Jesus has come to accomplish. I pray that you would hear my heart even this morning. For I know there are among us, even among our young ones, there are some of you who have not yet believed on Jesus Christ to be saved. I want you to hear and understand the truth of this gospel Jesus has come and given Himself in every way so that you might be a child of God. Right now, apart from Him in your sin, the Bible says that you are a child of wrath. But oh, glory of glory, Jesus Christ has borne the Father's wrath for sinners on the cross. He has risen from the grave, thereby defeating death. And so you don't need to be afraid of God's wrath. You don't need to wonder about whether or not you will be received in God's sight. Believe this very day in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Turn this hour And be received in the arms of Jesus Christ as you trust in all He has done to make you right with the Holy God above. That takes me into my third and final point as we see the humble response of His servant. The humble response of His servant. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to Your word. In Mary, we are privileged to see a great example of what loving obedience to God looks like. In her, we see how a faith-filled mind and heart is then borne out in an obedience of will. The first thing we see is that Mary was humble and poor in spirit. Mary, it seems, was not self-sufficient. She was not resistant to God taking the initiative. Her posture was that of recognizing her need and being open to the grace of God. And indeed, as we understand biblical salvation, we know that God is the one who gave her that heart. In Christ, and out of our love for Christ, brothers and sisters, we are likewise called to cultivate a heart of humility and dependence. Think about the Beatitudes, what our Savior Himself says to us. Matthew 5, 3-6, through 6, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The good news is that Jesus has manifested all these things. He has gone before us, and and it is He who is at work in us, and He calls us even now as His children to manifest these very traits. May we too be a people who humbly, desperately long for the grace of Christ. Secondly, Mary had a reflective nature where she truly sought to discern God's Word and work. We saw this earlier when after she was troubled by Gabriel's appearance, it says she also sought to discern what these things meant. Mary was not superficial. She was a young woman who gave careful consideration to the things of God, and then by His grace, she embraced them in faith. Again, The Gospel tells us, brothers and sisters, that Christ works that same heart in us. We don't have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Christ does this marvelous work of regeneration in us. And then it is He who even gives us the will to obey Him and honor Him in the process of sanctification. In Him, we are both enabled and called to nurture a similar reflective heart that cherishes and meditates upon Christ's person and word. Remember the words of Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Third, Mary had a believing heart regarding God's miraculous power and purpose in conceiving the Christ child within her. She had a believing heart. After Gabriel revealed God's plan for her, she wondered about the mechanics of how it would happen, but she never doubted that it would happen. She knew God would do as He promised and that God's work in and through her was a blessing of His favor, not a curse. You know, sometimes we do that, don't we? Sometimes we look at God's Word and what God calls us to do in obedience. We look at that as a burden, as something that's hard and Terrible. But Mary saw God's work in her as a blessing of His favor, not as a curse. She might have, in the moment, considered all the hardships that God's decision could bring upon her. I mean, after all, how was she going to explain a pregnancy to Joseph? They'd never been together. They weren't married. How was she going to explain this to her parents? How was she going to explain this just to the people of her own town and community? She would be perceived as a a fornicator. And the punishment for that was death. Mary could have been focused on all of that. But she wasn't. She did not allow the thoughts of such things to deter her faith. She trusted in exactly what Gabriel said, that nothing is impossible for God. And that the same Lord who could bring about a virgin birth could also protect and preserve her through the consequences of it. Brothers and sisters, this is how true faith responds to God's power and purpose. There will be times, my fellow believers, there will be times when we get so focused on our circumstances that we are tempted to doubt God's power and purpose. That we are tempted to depend upon ourselves in those moments of crisis. But all we need to do in those moments is look to Christ. To look to Jesus. And understand that even when our faith falters, His never does. Even when we struggle, His strength is perfected in our weakness. All we need to do is look to Him and remember that nothing is impossible for our God. Remember the words of Matthew 10 that Jesus gives us. Verses 29 and following are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Fourth and finally, the final thing we see about Mary is that her humility, reflection, and faith resulted in her profound submission to the Lord. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to Your Word. That is a spirit of submission. It is the same spirit of submission manifested by Abraham when God told him to leave his people and go to a faraway country. And it is that same submission that he manifested later on when God told him to sacrifice his only son Isaac. This is the same spirit of submission that we saw in young King David who trusted God above all else and stepped out alone onto the battlefield to face a giant. This is the same spirit manifested in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who did everything the Lord commanded to bring God's Word to His people. And this is the spirit of submission that we ultimately see displayed in Jesus Christ our Savior as He prayed the night before His crucifixion. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. And that ultimately is the good news. Isn't it, brothers and sisters? That even when we struggle with submitting to God, we can rest in and trust and know that Jesus Christ has perfectly submitted for us. We can, by His grace, submit to the Lord's will because of what He has already done for us. And in that faithful submission, we, like Mary, can know the joy of being instruments for His glory. We can. Brothers and sisters, no matter where you find yourselves today, whether by God's grace you find yourself in a time of a good time, maybe of ease, maybe of triumph, maybe things are going well for you. Or maybe you find yourself in a a more difficult place, in a valley, struggling, wandering, wrestling. Know that Christ goes before you. That He has secured both your triumphs and your trials for you to work out His glory, His will in you as His precious child for your good and for His glory. Philippians 2, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Father, you are so good to us. And we thank you for the richness of your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we have come to this passage in Luke, we will have been struck with awe and wonder again at the miracle of our Savior's birth. Understanding, Lord, that being born of a virgin was part of your purpose and plan so that Christ might intervene in human history and become the Savior of mankind. May we look to him and to him alone and know your grace and favor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.